You are now entering the multiverse. Welcome to the Charlie Jade Companion Podcast, providing detailed commentary from co-creator and producer Robert Wertheimer. The audio commentary within is designed to follow the action as you watch the show, pause the recordings during commercials, and if needed, be prepared to halt the video and wait for the audio commentary to catch up. We hope you will enjoy this behind-the-scenes look at the worlds of Charlie Jade. Hello, my name is Dennis McGrath, and I was one of the story editors of Charlie Jade. This is episode 13, Through a Mirror Darkly, of course, a Star Trek reference for any uh, enterprising sci-fi fans out there. This uh, episode is traditionally, it's, it's what's known as a bottle episode. Bottle episodes, or at least it was supposed to be. Bottle episodes are episodes where um, you're running low on money and you try to put all of uh, the action in a standing set, sets that you already have that you don't have to pay extra for with people you don't have to uh, pay for. Now, of course, the problem being that uh, you get directors who uh, often come up and they don't want to uh, actually play that game. So uh, in this episode, we actually wound up taking two of the, of the, uh, the plots out of the bottle. Whatever. It still winds up being more of a, uh, a cheaper episode because we also use some clips from previous episodes in there. You'd think that would be easier to write, but but not with Charlie Jade. Nothing was easy with Charlie Jade. So what you've been watching here, structurally, is uh, if you watched episode 12 where they busted O1 Boxer out of the police station, at the end there's a whole thing where Charlie surprises Lubinsky by, by revealing that O1 told him all sorts of stuff. But we don't know what that is. And uh, this is where we find all that out. <laughs> so, uh, in a sense, this entire episode takes place in the last act, or in the final moments of uh, the end of scene 12, or episode 12. You know, I, I repeat that back a few years later, and I realize that in a confusing show, this might just be the most confusing element. So now we're back in the Alphaverse. Um, I always liked Alphaverse. I wanted to spend more time in Alphaverse. One of the problems I thought we had was that we couldn't get Charlie back to Alphaverse uh, fast enough. Uh, there's something about the dystopian world that I find really interesting. Oh man! Oh, I forgot about this. This is ja- <laughs> this is Jasmine's client. Uh, Jasmine, poor Jasmine, after Charlie left, had to go back to her uh, old ways. Um, this is a cool little location in Cape Town where they actually, uh, all the taxis would come. And the taxis, the minibus taxis would wave. They were everywhere in Cape Town. And, uh, you know, we prepped this for a night shoot and it was kind of cool and did the famous wept downs. And this is supposed to be a, uh, a kind of weird, Jasmine is kind of okay going back to her old life. Uh, you know, bondage. 
being what it is in the Betaverse and the Alphaverse, which is a nastier place anyway, I guess it's, uh, it's uh, way less vanilla than it is uh, in our world. Um, I was hired on Charlie Jade as part of the second wave of writers with Alex Epstein as our head writer and uh, Sean Carley. Uh, I got the job on a Friday. They asked me if I could be a plane on a plane on a Monday. Uh, I said, and go away for six months? No, I, I, I can't. I think I got there on a Wednesday. I landed, met Alex. I already knew Sean. And uh, we got to work. Uh, part of the problems that you're going to see in this episode that we tried to correct, particularly starting sort of this is one of the first ones. Twelve was the first one we really got a crack at actually changing. Uh, this is... There was a lot of baggage with Charlie Jed. Um, where they had trouble finding the show, there was a, a disagreement between the people at the top of the creative ladder, which led to the departure of the first writers. And uh, when we came in, we went back to the whole... Uh, Bible document, which was the foundation document, and read some of the stuff that was supposed to be in the show and how cool it was. And none of that show was in the... None of that had sort of been in the in the show. There had been all this cool stuff, like, you know, oh, one apparently had a family in one of the worlds, and, and uh, you know, then there was stuff we couldn't explain, like the fact that Jasmine had a doppelganger, but apparently nobody else did. So, you know, at the end of the day what we decided was that this would be the episode where everything turned on its head and allowed us to proceed towards what we thought the conclusion of the season should be. By this point in the series, I think it's already out that the link is going to harm things. But, but what we decided about O1 was that this was going to be a uh, case where O1 told a bunch of lies to Charlie. And Charlie kind of, you know, got the truth out of him eventually, because he's the only one that he respects. So what we're, what we're looking at right now is a complete fantasy of O1's, you know, O1 spinning this. But in a minute, it's going to go into clips that we really did see. So there's a matching going on of stuff that actually happened before, and, you know. So here we got a little bit of a Tennessee Williams moment where, you know, Essa Romkin is romancing her father, and look at O1. O1's so emasculated and just concerned for daddy, and, you know, uh, I think it's pretty clear that Charlie Jig probably is going to buy this. But the idea behind this was that, you know, there was all these tropes that we were we were stuck with, like, you know, the constant, constant mention of you know, Katie Grail. And Katie Grail was mentioned so much in the early runs that we felt it had to be significant somehow. You know, if it, if it didn't pay off, it was going to be lame. So we decided that maybe, you know, what would be the most unusual thing to happen there? And that's sort of the big revelation in this episode that sort of makes you think differently about O1, maybe, and differently about Charlie and what their relationship needs to be to each other. Um, and that puts us on the course towards episode uh, to the end of the season. Jeff Pierce liked eating a lot. I call it eating acting. He was very good at it. Jeff Pierce is a great guy. So is Michael Filipovich. Both uh, fantastic actors.
this is all clips now we're watching from the pilot again. We're trying to recap sort of the confusing elements of the show and the physics involved. O1 selling. So this is Charlie being a detective. You know, one of the uh, one of the things that we liked about it was that Charlie was a detective, but he didn't really seem to do much detecting. I mean, in the early episodes, anyway, uh, we had sort of had a problem when we watched them back, thinking, you know, everybody in the world understands that this guy's in a parallel universe, except our detective character. <laughs> so we wanted to show off a little bit here of Charlie actually being an effective detective and finding out through interrogation, putting the pieces together with O1 that he hasn't been able to get before. This is a pretty momentous episode, when you think about it, in the history of the series, because except for a little passage in the end of eight, Charlie and O1 haven't met before. So now we get to the big thing, O1 and traveling and disappearing with the water. We had to go back and forth with lawyers to use that, believe it or not. You can't use it. It's from The Wizard of Oz. And we said, we know, but it's a reference. It's fair comment. And apparently, you know, under Canadian law, fair comment isn't as clear as it is under U.S. law. But I should actually say, too, Charlie Jade's kind of a little innovative here in the sense that what we're essentially watching here is torture porn. And this is, a, you know, a couple of years before Jack Bauer made this, you know, totally uh, acceptable on TV. And... I guess, depending on who you believe, before Dick Cheney made it totally acceptable everywhere else. Um, oh, this was a guy that we cast. Yeah. This is the whole Rena gets into O1 and Alphaverse plot. Some of these plots were all jumbled up because in, in the editing, things moved and things happened. I mean, one of the things that's hard about being a writer when you are not involved in the editing process, when you're not a writer-showrunner, is that, you know, you can write all this sort of stuff, but it doesn't matter if the if the uh, directors don't shoot it the right way and if the directors, uh, you know, have a different vision of how it turns out and how important it is, you could have missed story beats, and then you're trying to rewrite, but the problem is you're about three or four episodes ahead always from where they're shooting. So half the time if something doesn't get shot right, you've got to go back into the scripts that are coming up and fix scripts that don't have beats that, that were hit that were supposed to be hit for you to be able to move on. It's very confusing. It's why a lot of writers um, drink and have ulcers. So this is, this is the, the idea that, that Bob Wertheimer hated. This is bad, Rena. You know, we had uh, we sat there on the plane. I watched a lot of these episodes of Charlie Jade in early cuts, even on the plane to Cape Town while I was going to work there. And the complete catalog of awful things that was done to Rena in the first few episodes just boggled my imagination. And uh, 
when we were trying to come up with plots and decisions of this, we decided that we were going to do is we were going to um, we were going to try to explain all that. That the idea was that somebody was trying to force Rena into having a psychotic break, in which case she could sort of have lost time and be turned into the perfect kind of uh, murdering machine. The terrorist that she sort of suggested that she was in the first pilot, and the pilot she, she really wasn't, that it really took these many degradations in the Betaverse, which is supposed to be our world, to turn her into uh, Bad Rena. And Bad Rena was the person that was sort of the destroyer. Now we're back with Charlie and 01, and Charlie doing his best Jack Bauer. Director of this episode is a guy named Neil Sundstrom. He did a very good job integrating this stuff. He's a big South African director. I don't think he was very pleased getting this episode because, you know, directors like when you run, jump, and shoot. He, You know, I tried to tell him that, that you know, this is in many ways, you know, one of the defining episodes of the series. It's the first meeting of your hero and your villain after many, many episodes, but I don't think he bought that. Now, you must help us, O one. <laughs> We're your only hope. That's another intentional echo of something. Another sci-fi movie. I don't know. This, of course, if you saw the episodes from the beginning, you'd know that this is, again, O-1's complete fantasy. This never happened. It certainly didn't happen this way. It was, in fact, the inverse of this. They... He thought he was going to come in and take over, and in fact, he was made the courier, and he was very humiliated by this. But O-1 is trying to explain to, uh, to Charlie that, you know, he's daddy issues. He's trying to deny it, but Charlie doesn't buy it. This was a really old, skanky, abandoned warehouse somewhere on the edge of Cape Town. Uh, you know... All these places are obviously pretty unsafe, you know? There were needles and all sorts of bad stuff happening. This is the version of the story where he's trying to put it all on Essa Romkin and Galt. It's an interesting choice here. How over the top is he supposed to be to make this turn work? I actually was surprised by how brutal this stuff came back. You know, actors... And directors always like to push it.
So now we're going to hear another version of a one story. Here we go. <laughs> the men in gray suits. I mean, this was kind of an X-Files thing. We were kind of stuck with this thing, too. Uh, just people in gray suits seem to be chasing him everywhere. And, uh, you know, again, it's like you can't introduce an element like that and drop it. So we decided that we were going to make it, make it a complete, you know, something else that, that O-1 tells. And how much is he telling the truth here? How much is he lying? The ironic thing is that, you know, you're supposed to think one thing. And really, if you watch Charlie G.A. to the end of the season, uh, you'll find out that there's maybe a little more truth to this one than you think. That's the, uh, the basic structure of what we tried to come up with here, is that uh, every story that O1 tells has more of the truth in it as Charlie wears him down. Uh, you're not supposed to think that here, but the reality is that you know he 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 is uh, he's trying to tell Charlie something that maybe uh, Charlie isn't quite willing to hear yet, uh, but that will play out down the line. This was one of these things where I just went through all the. Uh, I had to go through all the episodes that existed up to this point, and we had this great weird riot thing. And it just sort of happened that we, these guys that look like the guys in gray suits just whisked the widow of Elliot Krog away. So we, we use that. See, Charlie's not buying this. The main thing I remember about this time in, in Cape Town was just how un, under the gun we were. Uh, we really, we, we, we landed and we had to rewrite episode 9, which I did a lot of work on in a couple of days. 10 and 11, I think, were done over a weekend. This was a challenge in and of itself because it involved, you know, trying to get so many clips going. Uh, this is uh, Jasmine's history now. This is everything bad that's happened to Jasmine up to this point. And she's going to take it all out on this client. This client is going to sort of take her to a bad place and make her remember something from her past. And from there, that's going to put her onto a path that's going to bring her into the orbit of this gentleman here, David Dennis. Susu Tukars. We just loved this guy. We just thought he was such a good actor. And we thought that the more we put uh, Marie Jolie, who's uh, Jasmine here, in scenes with David, the better she was. I mean, these two just really 
had good chemistry together. In, in a way, they had way better chemistry than, uh, than Charlie and, uh, and Jasmine, because Charlie is so minimalist, kind of, that, you know, you need more, uh, she needed more, I think, to play off of. Um, there's some lovely work coming up in episodes to come between Susu and, and Jasmine. But that's getting ahead of myself again. This is Rena and this is the, uh, again, the here. Uh, what we wanted to do is we wanted to sort of bring everybody's histories again to the forefront and sort of give you an idea of who they were. Because this is the last episode where, you know, they're all separate. Um, I mean, Charlie and one aren't separate in this one, but the next episode is where Charlie meets Rena. So from here to the end of the series, the paths of these three main protagonists are going to converge in a way that they haven't up till now. Um, so this was sort of a way to tie up where everybody's been up till now and what they're doing and, and what it's all about. This is where Le Rena learns what's really going on. Uh, she hasn't known that up till this point. And uh, Charlie and uh, O1, I mean Charlie and, and Lubinsky learned about it um, a little while ago, a couple of episodes ago. Uh, there was a whole bunch of other stuff here that, you know, they chose to cut a lot of dialogue and, uh, and go with uh, that imagery. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's a valid choice, I guess. Uh-oh. One of the classic bottle episode tropes is, uh, you know, put people in an elevator and make there have, have there be a bomb. So, that's of course what you got. This looks like it was some sort of a trap now laid for Rena. They're in the boardroom. Boardroom's going to blow up. Now what do you do? Uh-oh. Kids, plastic bags are not a fun toy. They're very dangerous. Don't play with them. Not even, uh, you know, if you're doing that special kind of play. Um, so now we're at the part in this narrative sort of where Charlie and one are almost, uh, you know, he's really wearing them down. This is Charlie giving his version. And then we're going to have something very surprising from 01. Now that was, of course, to me was this was that's this is sometimes where the uh, the director and the writer the writer has got to be the sort of the keeper of the thing, right? The keeper of the flame. Um, you've got to keep all the story elements in your head. Uh, I got the, the rough cut back on that and said, um, the one thing that Charlie Jade can't do is pour water over O1's head. Because we've established in episodes of the series up to this point that if you pour water under O1, he travels to another universe. But, you know, I was overruled. So if those of you out there are looking at that and going, but wait a minute, that, that's a logical inconsistency. Yes. Yes, it is. I'm sorry about that. I did the best I could. 
now Charlie's sharing a little bit about who he is with a one. You know, it's that old, you know, uh, soften up your opponent by creating a, uh, you know, whatever. But O1 is uh, turning it around on him here. Charlie is sort of approaching it from an element of uh, an element of superiority here, and this is where O1 is trying to turn it around on him. Say maybe he's not so superior. From the beginning, the idea that we've been suggesting here, or trying to suggest since we came on, and I don't know if it was the intent from the beginning, but we were trying to suggest that that O1 and that Charlie are linked in some fundamental way. You know, and not just in that way that, you know, heroes and villains are linked. Uh, this is where we start to give a hint to it by the end of this episode here. This one's a pretty key one, actually, because I think at this point now, we're getting closer. Here's where O1 makes a case that basically violent revolutionaries have always made in the sense that Elliot Krog wrote a memo, but it wasn't going to help. That in fact, O1 is a hero because he's the only one who took action. Owen says he had to kill Elliot Krog because Elliot Krog just would have rebuilt the link. Here's where the threads now are going to start to tie together of what you saw back in the pilot, where Owen disappeared. At a key moment, what happened? There's the universe is coming together. Charlie sort of saw the, the stuff going down found himself in briefly between Alpha, Gamma, and Beta. That's the first time he's admitted that. This little girl was absolutely terrific. She's a really good actress. I wonder if she, oh, she sticks with it. She was really good. She was very natural. And there it is. This again was, <laughs> this is a, yet another plot thread. I mean, it, it seemed like once we got to Beta, there was all the stuff that went down in uh, in Fexcore in Beta that, you know, it's not entirely sure what O1 Boxer's plan was. Um, you know, if he was, 
an agent of chaos like the Joker, then that would be one thing. But it didn't seem like that was going to be the, the thing. So we had to explain that, too. Here's the board of directors that he took out. So now he suggests that everything he's been doing is to try to get Fexor off the mark of reopening that link. I think pretty much from this point on, the intent that we had was that at this point, O1 is kind of telling Charlie the truth. It's his truth. He's omitting some stuff. Uh, specifically, he's omitting any talk of Gamma and his motivations there. You'll see that moment in a minute. And the thing about it is that everything he's saying here is true. This was the other thing, right? The, the, other, the other thing that was a problem that, that, you know, the whole idea being that there was only one link and they had the link down and then for some reason they established that there was a little link that was a second link that, you know, so the thing that was special and unique wasn't special and unique. So I'm glad they blew that up because that's a bit of a plot hole. This is one of my favorite scenes in the early episodes that I didn't work on, this fight. This guy was actually the stunt coordinator. He was, he was great. It was a brutal fight. Um, and it was so good that actually we actually found a way to bring that character back, even though he's de dead at the end of this thing, uh, in an epi upcoming episode, I think episode 18. Here's a big one. Owen's got one last card to play. And there we go, back to the beginning. The woman that Charlie couldn't help, the woman that came to him and set him on the motion. I can't believe we cut away at that moment. Alright, well, whatever. Now we're back in ja uh, Jasmine's subplot. This is where Jasmine's going to go over the edge, I think. At least I, I think this is where she goes. That's Jasmine's former employer. Wow, that was a quick transition. Ah, uh, look. Look at the rack focus. Ah, uh, there it is. There we go. Oh, one says he didn't kill Katie Grail. And you're supposed to be going, oh yeah, what a liar he is. But the reality is that what we decided was that he didn't. He didn't kill Katie Crail. Just because we couldn't figure out 
what with Katie Grail was making sense. So this was our invention now. Katie Grail worked for Vexcore. Katie Grail was involved in the destruction of the link. And essentially that's the issue. Charlie's been wandering around the Betaverse sort of not really knowing what he's doing or what he should do. He's been stumbling around and in fact the provocative thing that we're trying to suggest here is that you know Owen Boxer has been acting like a laser beam. He's been an agent of chaos but boy he's actually been a little effective. So now here we are back roughly at the end of episode 12 where we saw before Charlie doesn't necessarily accept what O1 has said about Katie Grail. So now he's got to prove it. Oh, Charlie. The world isn't like you thought. Uh, I had a particularly bad relationship with cars in South Africa. Apparently, uh, you know, when they rent you cars, uh, it's only, uh, there's a lot of standard. It's not a lot of automatic cars. So I had this, uh, the only automatic car they could find to rent me was this crappy old uh, Nissan Exa, which I called Old Paint, which broke down frequently, which is not a thing you want to have happen to you in South Africa in the middle of the night. Um, I think it broke down three times before I finally was able to get a better car. I don't know why I'm telling you that. Uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I didn't write all this dialogue. I think it goes too far. You know, like I, I just, uh, I like to, I don't know. I like a little bit more subtly here. But the idea was to drive Jasmine to this final action where she doesn't know what she's doing, and by killing this guy. Um, you know, she's in deep trouble. Uh, and Susu is going to get her out of it. So-so. See, now, to me, I was, I was just a writer on Charlie Jade. Um, you know, I do more producing now of the stuff I write. And uh, from my point of view, this is this is way too long to go back to a plot. It's been so many minutes since we saw anything to do with Rena. This is where we're suggesting that, you know, bad Rena has got this uh, knowledge that good Rena doesn't. Rena knows how to defuse the bomb because she's gotten some sort of training there. 
Why do I have the feeling that it's this one? And of course her life flashes before her eyes, so we think she's going to die, but she doesn't. When you see these things back together, it's not a very good life to have flash before your eyes, you know? Poor Rena, man. She really has, she really has, you know, been through the ringer up till this point. Trisha does some very good work. Not so much in this episode, but in the next one. There's a scene with her and Charlie that I wrote a lot of that I'm uh, very proud of. Um, you know, how, how writing works is that my name's on this episode, but re the reality of the situation is that story teams work in television as a, as a real team, right? So you break the stories together as a group, and you, you know, work on them as a group, and you, you work on a bit of everybody's stories. Everybody vets each other's scripts, everybody makes suggestions, uh, depending on who's doing it, if, if it's a freelancer or something like that, uh, the story team will have to come and, and do a lot of writing. So... The ironic thing is, though this is uh, the episode that I'm credited with in the series, uh, I actually did probably less writing on this than I did on a lot of the other episodes. Um, you know, episodes that don't have my name on them. Uh, and the scenes that I'm proudest of in the series that I wrote <laughs> are not in this series. You know, I, I, I like some stuff I did on the, uh, there it is, Katie Grail, Vexcore ID. Oh my gosh. He was telling the truth. So now we're trying to go for a, I was trying to go for a Rick Blaine kind of meeting the minds here. Now one has got a wee bit of proof to show Charlie that's going to make everything Charlie thought was going on realize that maybe he's had it fairly wrong up till now. It's a terrible thing to realize. That was the line that we wanted to have in every version. Essa saying that in different contexts. I will do anything it takes to protect the integrity of this company. And in a sense, when he was telling that, that was the implication. Meaning that she would order the death of this girl. That's my favorite toast, by the way. That's totally me. I like to toast to evil. Because if you toast to evil, it means you're toasting to good in the world. It's also really cool to do. Also a key thing that uh, Owen just said about himself, he does like being a psychopath. We have this sense that Owen had actually different personalities in each verse. In the Gammaverse, it was the only place where he was an adult. An adult. The Alphaverse, he was a child, and in B.A. he was sort of like the acting-out teenager. See? Little Casablanca reference there. This is my favorite. 
they're talking about the ending of Casablanca, and you see Charlie's view from the Alphaverse. Charlie, of course, being from the Alphaverse, had never seen Casablanca. That's the Charlie Jade philosophy, and that's the philosophy that we're going to change over the next seven episodes. Here's the thing that O1 is holding back from Charlie. The fact that he has something in Gamma that, that's even more important to fight for that Charlie has. He's not going to tell him that. That part of his reason shall remain a mystery. And this is where we suggest that idea that, you know, O1 does admire Charlie in a way. Charlie kind of needs O1. I don't know if I had time to tell this, but that's what South Africans say when they serve you. And, you know, for the first month, it's really great. They go, pleasure. And then you realize after a while that actually what it means is, you know, a lot of the time, it means F you. <laughs> the moment you realize that, you're like, oh, well, that's not good. That's important. So we have an alpha-verse or a gamma-verse bomb. Maybe. They don't know what happened. Their little tr Chinese trap that they got out of there, Rena and the guy got out of, who said it? Why does she have a feeling? And of course, we rewind everything back to the beginning. Yet another... Uh, Another uh, replay of the greatest degradation hits of Rena. I don't remember if we shot this for this episode or not now. Isn't that funny? Yeah, I think maybe we might have shot this. This is the whole idea that this is the revelation of the created a bad Rena. And here is the whole sort of big reveal in the end. And, you know, I don't think it's actually shot right, but the intention here obviously was to show that, in fact, it was Rena that planted the bomb. Is that not in the cut? Ugh, see, they didn't make it explicit. See, this was the constant fight, right? You know, to we, we would write something that would be explicit, and either the directors would second-guess it and not shoot it. 
I don't know, this is a bit of my issue that I write about on my blog, you know, Dead Things on Sticks. But uh, this is why I think, you know, television is a medium where writers need to, to run it, because unlike a movie where you can have one person with one vision, the director, and there's only one story to tell, television shows are uh, systems, you know? And the person keeping track of all the stories across all the episodes, if that person's not a writer, you're going to have lots of holes. Charlie Jade did a very ambitious show. It gave me a very big break, and I'm very appreciative to it. There's a lot in here that I really like, too. It was a fun experience, and Cape Town's amazing. Um, anyway, I wish I was a little bit more articulate here. I didn't plan this out. It's been three years since I've seen this episode, four years since we produced it. Uh, I'm very glad that you know people are getting a chance at the net and through you know sci-fi even if it's on at 3 a.m. to finally see this this show because I think it is really interesting I think it tried to you know anticipate a bunch of stuff and and uh, show sort of a pan African and European and you know internationalist dystopian view of the future uh, I would also encourage everybody keep stay tuned because our best episodes are coming up and by the end of the season I think we hit a great groove anyway thanks for listening For even more news, information, and conversations about the amazing worlds of Charlie Jade, visit charliejade.net. This has been a Farpoint Media production.